Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. B -b bullshit this makes no fucking sense. I mean, it's just bullshit. Fuck. B -b bullshit this is bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell. Welcome back to the bullshit filter, Ray. Yeah. Are yeah. you feeling? Are you feeling uh, okay, Ray? Are you, are you feeling healthy today? Well, I've had my vaccines, and I currently have a whiskey-induced glow about me. I'm good. All good here. How about you? Uh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I'm a little bit groggy, honestly. Right. Um, I was uh, in bed last night reading uh, Robert Caro's biography on Lyndon Baines Johnson. Right. Put it down. Put it down about midnight. Went to sleep. Then uh, the mother of all possums. About half an hour later, decided to. Uh, is that, a, is that jump. an expression? No, I guess yeah. not. Okay. Just decided to jump from <laughs> our roof down onto the uh, the roof of our deck, which is just outside my bedroom window. Scared the fuck out of me. You ever woken up and just there's adrenaline coursing yes. through your yes. veins? Yeah. I'm like, so damn it, D'Angelo, that's sleep. not funny. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. go ahead. No, no. Yeah, it's hard to go back to sleep when you've got when you've got that. Wrong hole. Wrong What's hole. Um, Wave them away. Wave them off. No, not over here. So about so about one thirty, I took a sleeping tablet, and oh, uh, I'm still, still feeling the yeah. uh, the, yeah. the groggy after effects of that. But uh, you know, I rise to the occasion, like D'Angelo. I rise to the occasion <laughs> when needed. Yeah, three or four times uh, in the night. God, I'm trying to sleep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I put a picture up on the um, Facebook Life of Caesar. There was a picture of a cigar and some whiskey, and the vast majority of the people mm. thought it was you. I don't know what that mm. says about you or your reputation. Um, I'm worried mm. about you. I wish it was me because, as you know, <laughs> I, I have neither cigars nor whiskey anymore. Uh -huh. um, I felt very jealous, and I immediately wanted to move in with you. Uh -huh. um, not for it's... the usual reasons, just for the cigars and the whiskey. <laughs> the rest is just icing on the cake. I'm, I'm sorry, please continue. Mm. I, I, I am getting a better understanding, though, of why you continue to edit shows where uh, in the final edit you, you start right. laughing at my joke before <laughs> I tell it. It's so because... It makes sense now. You're imbibing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, as you edit. Mm. <laughs> um, we're doing the anti-vax series. We're up to episode 4.4, and where we left off last time, yeah. we're still breaking down anti-vax claim number two. I, I Googled around. I found a list of claims that anti-vaxxers make. Number two was vaccines do not work. They may create a temporary increase in antibodies for a particular disease, but this does not equate to immunity to disease. Right. And as we said last time, that's nonsense, but we're going to get into that. Um, we, we said, look, immunity, that's not, that's not what vaccination's about. It exactly. doesn't claim perfect immunity. Right. right. Um, 
there's uh, the rest of the quote goes on about whenever the outbreaks are examined more closely, the data show that the majority of those suffering have been vaccinated for the disease. Disease charts show that diseases were mostly eliminated prior to the creation of vaccinations. What is truly responsible for most communicable disease elimination is clean water and improved sanitation. Mm. Now, the, these are the claims that I want to get into today on today's right. episode. Um, before we start off, you you got anything to say about vaccinations? Uh, anything you want to throw in well, there, jump in? Well, we, we did a lot of my notes last time for... Um, for question number two, but I do want to throw this out. They're, they're not wrong. That claim is not technically wrong in that if you do have uh, cleaner drinking water, better conditions, better sanitation, diseases are going to go down. But that's not what we're talking about here. To me, again, they're splitting hairs about trying to um, either give too much or take too much credit away from vaccines. There's this booming industry that I had no idea that it, that existed, but after uh, trying to search for this question, I came across a lot of companies that are helping you at your company, with your company, in case infectious diseases break out. And they were saying all these different things you can do and all these different services that they have, but they were saying that the number one thing you have to take care of is to have clean drinking water. If you can get clean drinking water, if your water's safe, you can help massively reduce things like the common cold, influenza, pneumonia, hepatitis A, acute gastroenteritis, stomach infections, and all that kind of stuff. And so, Again, a lot of this stuff is common sense that if you have, if you're not drinking bad water, you're not going to get so many diseases. But again, that's not what they're talking about. They're trying to say that better conditions and cleaner water is pretty much taking care of all these diseases. Again, I think, I think they're taking a basic premise, which is accurate, and just taking it way too far. Hmm. Well, we'll drill down into it and see right. how that claim holds up. But before we do that, I want to talk about measles. Love measles. Um, yeah, don't we all? Now, measles uh, is one of the most infectious diseases ever. Right. And uh, as we'll talk about, there's some good examples of that happening around the world right now. A person with measles can cough in a room, leave, and if you walk into that room a few hours later and you're unvaccinated, you can catch the virus from droplets in the air that the infected person left behind. No other virus apparently can do that. Right. It's very, very infectious. According to the CDC, as many as one out of every 20 children with measles gets pneumonia, which mm. is the most common cause of death from measles in young kids. And right. that's important. Because secondary illnesses is something that we're going to talk about as we go through this. Um, about one out of every 1,000 children with measles will develop swelling of the brain, mm. which can lead to convulsions and leave the child deaf or with an intellectual disability. And then, of right. course, they have no choice but just to become a podcaster later on in life. <laughs> For every one, it's true. It's, See, when it's, you edit this, yeah, when you edit this show, you're gonna you're gonna start laughing before I say that. I guarantee it. Deal. Let me I make a note. It. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I just did. I just said that. 
I'm predicting it. It's my prophecy. All right. For every 1,000 children who get the disease, according to the CDC, one or two will die from it. Now, very few people, about three out of 100, who get two doses of the measles vaccine will still get measles if exposed to the virus. Mm-hmm. And this is a this is an important thing, I guess, to really understand um, that you can get your recommended doses and still get the virus. Vaccinations right. aren't a hundred percent effective to a hundred percent of the people a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> right. Um, you know, because we 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 it's I mean it's not I wouldn't call it a pot shot, but we're we're trying to cry. Everyone's everyone's biology is slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're, and there can be a whole bunch of reasons why you, you um, don't end up with uh, uh, some immunity after you've had your vaccinations. Could be that your uh, your immune system didn't respond as well as it should to the vaccine. Could be that mm-hmm. there's uh, something wrong with the vaccine that's given to you. It's administered badly. Something's wrong with that batch. It could be the way that your just your body deals with it. There's a whole bunch of variables in there. Mm. The very the vast vast majority of people who get their recommended doses won't catch it, but it's still possible. There's still a very very small number of people that will get it, and this is going to play into um, some of the stories that we tell later on. Yeah, um, I want to, uh, uh, but the good news is. Fully vaccinated people who get measles, even if you still get it, it's going to be much milder than it would have been if you weren't vaccinated. And also, the fully vaccinated people who get the disease are less likely to spread the disease to other people, Mm, including people who aren't vaccinated. Right. Um, so, and we're going to talk a little bit about herd immunity in upcoming uh, episodes because this is another, it's, it's a, an important issue to understand. I think it's a little bit misunderstood in the public and certainly by anti-vaxxers, they misunderstand herd immunity. They often, you'll often read an anti-vax website, it's herd immunity doesn't work. <laughs> um, and we'll, we'll get into that later on. Right. Now, before the, before the measles vaccination program started in 1963, in the United States, about three to four million people a year got measles. <clears throat> of those, about four to five hundred died. Forty-eight thousand ended up in hospitals, and four thousand developed encephalitis—that brain swelling I mentioned before—from the measles. Right. Now, in 2018, Ray, in the United States, do you know how many cases were reported? In 2018, um, I have no idea, 150. 349, down from three to four million a half a century ago. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's that's progress. <laughs> that's good. Um, but the numbers are on the rise again. In the US. A few years ago, there was a measles outbreak at Disneyland in California. Did you read up on that? 
I did read up on that. Supposedly, um, someone, they don't know who, at least I couldn't find it, went to the Disneyland Resorts theme parks in Orange County, California, from December 17th through the 20th in 2014, infected some people, and I think by January 21st of 2015, there were 51 confirmed cases of measles linked to to this outbreak that were reported to the CDC. Yeah, I, I saw various numbers. I saw that eventually 125 people were infected. Then I read 131. Then I read 159. So yeah. I don't know what the real number is, but there was 100 and something people ended up infected. 100 of those were from California. The leading mm. theory is that the um, patient zero in that case was somebody who was a foreign tourist right. who went to Disneyland and brought the measles with them. Thanks, Disney. Now... I'm going to drill into the numbers a little bit here because this is um, this particular incident is one that the anti-vaxxers like to talk about at the moment. Um, uh, uh, among the California patients, which is about 100 or 110, again, I've seen different numbers, about 45% of those people who got the measles at Disneyland were unvaccinated. Right. Mm. So less than half of the people who got the disease were unvaccinated. Right. So on the surface, that makes it look like 55% of the people who got measles were vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Now, this leads to the anti-vaxxers saying, look, the majority of the people who got measles there were vaccinated. Vaccination doesn't work. (laughs) God. Right? Right. That's 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 the level of uh, and they logic stop right that goes there. This deep R- thinking, and, right? And they yeah. stop right there and they just say, "See, see, see, we win." See, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, it's like talking to Americans about the Mueller report and the bar letter. Uh, no ability to fucking read. I've been saying to people on Facebook, "Am I the only person who can fucking read?" Still, really? I think so. Oh my god. Anyway. Let's say put it on YouTube. On that. Let's say put it on YouTube. I'm not gonna. No, go ahead. Yeah. Um, now, so let's look at the 55 percent uh, there. Now, five percent had one dose of the measles vaccine, and mm. obviously, two is what's recommended for right. maximum immunity. Um, but even that leaves 50 percent. Uh, no, sorry, that means there were 50% that were either unvaccinated or didn't have enough vaccinations. You take the 45% that were unvaccinated, another 5% hadn't had their full vaccinations. Mm -hmm. Now, only 7%, according to the CDC, only 7% of the people who got measles at Disneyland had had two or more doses. Mm. Okay. Had their proper vaccinations. So what about the other 42%? Well, they are unknown or undocumented in terms of their right. vaccination status. They we don't they didn't really know. And honestly, I don't really know. If you said to me, "Have you had your measles vaccinations?" I would honestly go, "I don't know, man. I Maybe? think I think so. I'd, Maybe? I'd probably have to call my mum. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to call my mum. I'll call her. Go. I'll call her. Yeah. Yeah. No, if, I had, if I had measles. Uh, vax- vaccinations? I'm pretty sure I have because I've never had right. the disease as far as I can so remember. You're probably you know good. what my memory's like. I, I, I can't fucking remember anything, but uh, I remember thousand- having the mumps. Right, right. 
as a kid. Yeah. But I think that was before the MMR vaccine. Right? Um, I had the mumps. I don't know. I, I don't think I've had measles. I had chicken pox. I had chicken I've pox, had yeah. uh, mumps, but I don't think I've had measles. Yeah. What about you? So, Have you had measles? Um, I don't think so, but the bubble kind of protects me. No, I was just going to say that you yeah. can remember stuff from 2,000 f- years ago, but you can't remember 30 years ago. So, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Encephal- if you had had encephalitis, that would explain a lot of things. No. That plus the bubble boy. And, no. Uh, no, I, I, I yeah, uh, smallpox, but I think that was it. You had smallpox. I believe, not smallpox, really? shit. What am I, chickenpox, shit, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Pox, I got focused Small on the pox. Pox. <laughs> pox on your house. It's a bit different. You're normally focused on cocks. <laughs> I can hear Fox playing piano out there. Oh, good for him. Can you hear the piano? No. Oh, okay, hopefully it's not too loud. Okay, good. Let me know if you start to hear it and I'm going to tell him to shut up. Um, yeah, so uh, only 7% of the people who got the disease at Disneyland were known to be fully vaccinated. Um, but right. so so the, 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 the whole anti-vax claim when they look at that and they go, look, 45%, only 45% of the people were unvaccinated. Uh, we win. In reality, right. when you actually drill down into the numbers, <laughs> only 7% of the people were fully vaccinated. The rest were unknown. Right. The rest of that 50%. Yeah. Um, but in 2011, there was an outbreak of measles started by someone who was fully vaccinated. So it mm. can happen. You can get yeah. both of your shots, and as I said before, it just doesn't take. There's an incredibly right. small probability of that happening, but it is still probable, and there's a whole bunch of you know variables that go into why it couldn't happen, why, why you may still get the disease. Um, but when it happened in 2011, <clears throat> this is when a person who was vaccinated spread the disease, it was a very big deal because it was the first time it had ever been reported as happening. Mm. According to the CDC, during 2011, a provisional total of 222 measles cases were reported from 31 states. Most patients were unvaccinated, 65%, or had unknown vaccination status, 21%. Right. So 76% um, were unvaccinated or unknown in that one year. So that still leaves you with 24% of people who were vaccinated and got got the disease. Right, right. So you can still get the disease, as we said before, But your chances are a lot, lot less. And if you do get it, it's going to be a lot, lot milder and you're going to be a lot less infectious. If I can add to that real quick, um, the numbers that I had about the 52 people that the CDC um, were told about, those numbers roughly break down to the same thing that you were saying. And also there's a, there's many, many, um, how should I put, anti-vax websites out there. J- just to add on to what you were saying, they were saying that um, roughly – um, two to ten percent of people who get the measles vaccine, it does not take for them. But all the other websites that I read said it was like two to four percent. And also, they were saying that um, 
if you're over the age of 40, your, your measles vaccine doesn't work for you as well, which the CDC did say there were instances where, you know, it only works for a certain amount of years. And so, but again, they're taking their arguments, they're taking what they want from it. it's very selective, and they're making their case by looking at everything that we're, that we're going over from a certain point of view. Yeah, and as I said, if you take any annual numbers from the CDC's report, if I took I took the 2011 one, which was I don't know the most recent one I could find, um, it said that uh, two two hundred and twenty two measles cases in that year, um, and about twenty four percent were uh, right. vaccinated, known to be vaccinated. But, so, so yeah. The, the, yeah. I'm sorry, but that reminds me, I think you said the last time we were recording, when we recorded the first three shows, it was you or somebody who looks like you on YouTube, said that at the end of the day, the entire vaccination process is a numbers game. Like you said, it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to take the the body. uh, The immune system is very complex. You never really know what's going to happen. This is a numbers game. So you were mentioning the 2011 outbreak where 20-something percent of the people um, who still got it were vaccinated. And so at the end of the day, I think that's something that either the the anti-vax people either play up, depending on what their argument is at the time, or they ignore depending on what their argument is at the time. But again, I think we're going to see that over this series of uh, episodes, it is a numbers game. It does seem to be a, a, a net gain for the people who are vaccinated, but that's not what they're focused on. They're focused on instances like this where people who are vaccinated who have had all their shots still get or still contract the measles disease. So the claim that we started with, uh, the anti-vax claim, was whenever outbreaks are examined more closely, the data show that the majority of those suffering have been vaccinated for the disease, and that mm. is not supported by the evidence that I saw. So I give that a five on the bullshit meter. Yeah. Now, there's, of course, a big measles outbreak happening in the United States at the moment, and I thought we should talk a little bit about that because it's uh, there's some good examples in this of what's going on. Um, the, the number of new cases in 2019 is... The highest level of cases the U.S. has seen in 25 years. Uh, as of this week, I think about 700 cases have been reported. Now, remember, in 2011, right. I said there was 222 cases. In 2018, mm-hmm. in the U.S., there were 349 cases. So, right. yeah, this year already 700 cases. Um and uh, they're, they're, they're freaking out, the authorities, particularly in places yeah. like New York. Even Trump this week went public yes. to tell people to get vaccinated. Now, <laughs> he's been associated with the anti-vax movement in the past. He's uh, made anti-vax-type statements in the past. He right. was uh, talking to Robert Kennedy Jr. about being his like anti-vax guy, apparently, at some stage, and we're going to talk about... Robert Kennedy Jr. a little bit later on too, in more detail. Um, but even even Trump, when the rubber hits the road and there's a big measles, he goes, no, 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 you need yeah. to be vaccinated. Like, Get the all, shots. like all seriousness for a minute. Right. Yeah. Right. All seriousness, this is really, you know, let, let, let's cut out all the right. populist anti-vax bullshit appealing to my uh, crazy minorities. Uh, no, 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 you, you really, you, yeah, you really need crazy. to get these shots. Yes. Ch- change his mind. Um <laughs> 
Now, the most heavily affected with this current outbreak are apparently Orthodox Jewish communities in New York, yes. which tend to have lower vaccination rates. Yeah. Uh, only 72.9% of people under 18 in these Jewish communities have been vaccinated against measles. Still sounds high, but is not high enough for herd immunity. Uh, where not for measles. 95% right. is, yeah, is what exactly. they talk about for measles. Exactly. Um, now, the outbreak began in Rockland County of New York, where seven unvaccinated travellers who had measles entered that county last October. Um, So there you go. I think there have been over 200 cases in Rockland County reported so far. Uh, but the authorities think that the actual number is likely higher. These are just the cases that have been reported, and they're saying not all the cases are being reported. People are keeping it to themselves because they don't want the authorities to know that uh, their kids have measles. Uh, and yep. so as a consequence of all of this, they've uh, issued an emergency declaration in Rockland County to try and uh, combat the outbreak. Yeah, if I could just uh, add on to that, I was um, reading one of the reports, uh, one of the doctors, the health officials discovered that some of the religious schools in Rockland County had vaccination rates um, as low as 60%, far below the state average, which is 92.5%, especially for measles, like you said, you need 95%. And they did audits of some of these religious schools, and they found that either the schools or the parents were purposefully over-reporting vaccination rates. Again, they were just trying to keep the officials off their back. And I I did find out um, that they were trying to figure out why aren't more of these people vaccinated. And part of it was, and you and I have touched on this, is part of it is that wider anti-vaccination movement globally that people are concerned that they might be hurting their kids or their kids might get autism. That's a part of it. There's also cultural reasons when it comes to the Orthodox Jews that we can go into a moment. But yeah, I just, even these people um, in this school, and they're very tight con- tight community was also just believing some of the hype and there's a ton of it out there on the website um websites and um, i think they were just giving into it as well and literally lying to the officials and now they have this crisis on their hands yeah so one, i think one of the things that we talked about um in our earlier episodes was whether or not vaccines are mandated because uh, some people right. said to me in my original facebook thread on this Look, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think uh, they should get mandated personal liberty, this kind of stuff. And I said, well, I don't think they are mandated usually. And even in this case, they in, in New York, they haven't been mandated, but there are penalties that have been introduced if your kids are not uh, vaccinated. They have barred unvaccinated children from all public places, including schools, for thirty days. Right. Uh, Rockland residents are getting knocks on the door and delivery of notices saying that unvaccinated people exposed to measles must stay away from indoor and outdoor public places for 21 days or face $2,000 fines. But a judge put the ban on hold. There was Mm. a case uh, brought against the ban by the parents of unvaccinated children from a particular school, the Green Meadow Waldorf School, 
Right. Um, they were claiming that missing school, kids missing school was causing the parents financial hardship and no cases of measles had been discovered at their particular school and mm. the judge agreed mm. with that and put wow. a ban on the whole. Now, this school, based, uh, the Green Meadow Waldorf School, is based on the Waldorf curriculum, which is where kids spend half the day learning how to make a good Waldorf salad, which personally I'm all for. I think you can't go wrong with that as a standard of education. Right. Bit of walnuts in there. Bit, got to get but, the right combination of walnuts and apple into your Waldorf salad. Right. Um, actually, no, it's a, it's a, they're Steiner schools, I think. Waldorf, the Waldorf um, curriculum is basically Steiner schools. It's to, to get around calling it a Steiner school, they call it a Waldorf. No, it's not Steiner. It's Waldorf. <laughs> that's crazy. Because that sounds less ridiculous. Right. Wasn't he? He was yeah. one of the uh, two old critics in The Muppets, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think he was. Waldorf? Yeah. The shorter Stettler? one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yours. You. The one that you are. Is right. Waldorf. Waldorf and... Right. I can't remember now. I can't remember. Now, uh, getting back to the reasons why they don't get vaccinated, one of the parents in the lawsuit said, we are not against vaccinations, but we believe that God created the body and it should remain untainted by man. Mm. Pull the God card. Yeah. I would point out that God. you also believe that God created man, so... Anything man does is something that was created by God. Right. But, uh, yeah. God made diseases too. Another parent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. Maybe he wants your children to die. Another parent said, since for us the blood is the carrier of the soul, injections of vaccine substances, often animal or embryo derived, are strictly forbidden. Wow. Now, um... Yeah, I, I think a lot of uh, Judaism experts uh, have said, you know what, that it doesn't say that in the <laughs> Tanakh or the Talmud, so uh, that's nonsense. Um, but they, they, so the the judge put a ban on this, but then they've issued another emergency declaration. I think the original emergency declaration expired. And just mm. in the last week, and Rockland County have issued another one. Uh, there have also been hundreds of other cases around New York. Uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio right. in New York has declared a public health emergency, and they've required that unvaccinated individuals living in Williamsburg and uh, Williamsburg and Brooklyn to receive the measles vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is where it does start to get into mandated territory. It's in uh, a public health emergency. Now they are saying you need to get this. He said right. the city would issue violations and possibly fines of $1,000 for people who didn't comply. Damn. So what do you think if, about that? Um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to go into that. But I did want to mention one other thing. At the very beginning of this series, you were talking about, you know, this is not an attack on anti-vaxxers because they believe what they believe. We were trying to understand why people believe what they believe, know what they know, what are their sources, who, who, do, they, who do they consider credible, and, and they ignore other people. 
I did find this one article about the the situation with the Orthodox Jews, and this one report said that another part of this is obviously cultural. There's a Samuel Heilman, a Queens College a Queens College sociology professor who studies the Orthodox uh, ultra Orthodox, and he says that the fear of interference from the outside is deeply rooted in this community's origin in their pre-World War II Europe experience. So again, they, there's, a, there's a general tendency not to trust outsiders, not to try to interact with them more than you have to. And certainly if they're going to force something on you, you're going to fight that. And there's also another example of that because um, around the same time, there were uh, ultra-Orthodox who were fighting back against another health um, code, health department code, saying that New York City was trying to enforce to, uh, trying to stop a certain controversial circumcision practice because warnings from health officials said that it causes herpes in infants. And they're saying, again, we're not going to listen to you. This is what we do. This is, we've been doing this for thousands of years. This is our practice. This is, this is literally who we are, and we're not going to listen to who, you are, who we are. And so a lot of these people aren't getting vaccinated. They're lying about being vaccinated. They're lying to the schools. The schools are lying to the state. And so you have this very touchy issue about personal rights um, versus what the state needs, you know, to, to make sure it can survive. And again, I don't think this is going to stop anytime soon. I think this is just going to keep going. But at the same time, you can't ignore there's no amount of arguing or statistics or charts that argues against an epidemic that we are having in this country, and Europe is having it, and Israel is having it as well. Yeah. So let's get back to the point about yeah. government mandating vaccinations in this particular instance. How do you feel about that? Do you think it's uh, what are the, what are the ethics involved in governments mandating vaccinations? At what point do you draw the line? Yes, the parents are the. Um they have absolute legal right over their kids, but is that up to a point if there's something that the parents are doing that are endangering? How many times have you seen in the news parents going to jail because they didn't get their kids medical attention and they ended up dying for, for you know, lots of different reasons, not just because of disease or, or whatever. And so where where's the line? At what point is a state allowed to step in and protect itself and override someone's personal liberty? And so I think yeah. we're I think I I think we're there when you have an epidemic when you have an outbreak that and you just told us a couple of minutes ago how truly powerful or, or I'm not sure of the right word but how easy it is to spread measles the state has to do something to protect itself yeah and I do think the state has a responsibility to protect children I mean. Yeah. If we find out Fair that citizens. parents are beat, if we find out the parents are beating their kids or locking them up in uh, basements, there's been cases like that recently, like twelve kids in a basement that the parents had kept right. there for twenty five years. Yes. Um, if if they're, in, they're hurting or endangering their children, I think the majority of us would agree that no, we need to intervene. We need to step in and protect yeah. the child from abusive parents and uh, i think in the case of infectious diseases like this as well it's the same thing we need to if if it reaches a pub the level of a public health emergency as it has yeah. in new york um anyway so uh, people tried to stop this um 
mandated vaccinations in New York as well via the courts, but this time the judge ruled in favour of the city. Right. He said, no, this is, this is, this is legal. You need to do it. Um, now, uh, also linked to the ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities, this New York one, and also is a travel, uh, associated with travellers who brought back measles from Israel, where the disease is apparently spreading at the moment. And there's a, a slick 40-page booklet that's being distributed throughout Orthodox communities in New York and New Jersey, talking about the dangers of vaccines, created by a group called Peach Parents Educating and advocating for children's health. <sighs> Let your kids get measles, it says. No, I don't know what it says. But it's, it's, it's anti-vax. Um, right. And it's spreading through these Orthodox Jewish communities for some reason. Now, the book is directly aimed at the Orthodox community. It's partly written in Hebrew, filled with snippets from the Torah. But uh, I did read that local Orthodox Jewish leadership, even in New York, have been very clear in saying there is nothing in Jewish law that prohibits vaccinations. In fact, they say it's the opposite. The Torah says that a person mm. must guard their health. So even when you're making pro you know, religious arguments for this, it's very hard to back up with, with facts. Um, so at the moment in the US, there are measles outbreaks, not only in New York, also in Washington, New Jersey, California. Yeah. According to the CDC, all of these outbreaks are linked to travelers who brought measles in from Israel, Ukraine, and the Philippines, where there are also large measles outbreaks. Um, but in terms of mandated vaccinations, whilst... Vaccines are apparently required for school children across the U.S. Almost all states allow exemptions for right. families who say it's against their religious belief. And 17 states allow a parent to opt out for philosophical or personal reasons. So generally speaking, it's not mandated in most parts of the world, as far as I'm right. aware, except in extreme emergencies like what's happening in New York at the moment. Before we leave this topic, uh, as far as personal liberty and vaccination, uh, I'd like to bring up the great Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky. As far as, as recently as last month, he raised a personal liberty objection to the idea of uh, mandatory vaccines um, in a speech that he was given. And, um, and again, like you said, there's an outbreak in New York and there's an outbreak in Washington state. And so someone just, put it to him directly, because if there's anything that we've discovered over the last six years of doing podcasts, is at the end of the day, you can't go by what anybody says or what anybody writes down in their diary. I wish I'd done a better job. At the end of the day, it's what they do or what they don't do that matters. And so when a reporter asks him, are you and your kids vaccinated? Rand Paul had to be honest and say, yes, I believe that the benefits of most vaccines vastly outweigh the risks, but I still think that the government should persuade people and not force them to go through this. And I think we said this on a previous episode, that there actually is a Supreme Court case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts in 1905, when a man was forced to get a smallpox vaccine because they did have an outbreak. And so there is some legal right on the state side. But at the end of the day, I mean, 
this guy who, who is a doctor, he's an eye doctor, uh, but he, he keeps going on and on and on about people should not be forced to do that. Well, we're clearly in a situation in New York and Washington and California and other parts of the world where it does need to be mandated. And I'm trying to figure out this guy's angle. Is he like Trump? Is he like trying to keep those people who are independents or independent thinkers on his side by saying this rather silly thing? But at the same time, he, he made sure that he and his children were vaccinated. Is he trying yeah, to have well, the I best mean, of both making, worlds? Yeah. He's making the personal liberty argument because he's sort of known as a libertarian. And I've actually got a lot of personal liberty that I'm going to get to in a later episode, so I don't oh, okay. want to jump too far into that. But, right. um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I look, I, I think it's fairly easy to pick apart the personal liberty argument when we get to it. Uh, but I'll do that in the next episode, maybe. Um just uh, looking at measles around the world today, in 2018, Europe recorded more than 82,000 cases, which is a record high in the post-vaccine Damn. era for Europe. Mm-hmm. In 2017, measles killed 110,000 people worldwide, mostly children under the age of five. Right. Jeez. So it's uh, still an ongoing issue, um, even right. though it doesn't affect us so much in the West. And, and I think this is one of the problems with vaccinations, because we haven't had it for so long as a major issue. We, we For generations now, we kind of don't think about it, but yeah. it, uh, in different parts of the world, it's, it's a serious ongoing issue. Right. So I want to talk about clean water and sanitation now. Let's get on to that part of the argument. And um, as you said before, look, they're great things. And yeah. Improved socioeconomic conditions have undoubtedly had an indirect impact on disease. Mm. Now, Ray, nobody knows more about medicine than you. You worked in a clinic. Um, Mm. You're known as an expert on the medical practice, medical profession, medicine in general. You are the Galen of our modern era. Explain the difference between bacteria and virus to me, if you would, because uh, I always get the two confused. Oh, darn it. Um, That wasn't my specialty. I did open heart transplants. So I don't know. Why don't you tell me? Oh, okay. Um, Bacteria are singled-celled. Singled? Single-celled microorganisms, tiny, tiny little animals, uh, and mostly good, mostly good for us, bacteria. Uh, Our body is filled. I remember in my Three Illusions book, I think I wrote that 99% of the cells in your body are actually bacteria. 99% Uh, of the DNA in the human body are bacterial DNA. I think the numbers are, um, you're only 1% human DNA. Uh, now, bacteria are mostly good for us. We need bacteria in our gut and all of that kind of stuff. About 1% of bacteria is bad for us. Mm. Now, a virus, on the other hand, isn't really an animal. It's more like a nanobot. Uh, It's designed to make you sick by turning your cells into something else. 
and mm. it, it'll it'll get in and take over the cell machinery. Now, unlike bacteria, virus can't survive without a host. Oh, so yeah. So uh, they can only produce or reproduce by attaching themselves to cells. Mm-hmm. In most cases, they then reprogram the cell to make new viruses until the cells burst and die. In some cases, they turn normal cells into malignant or cancerous cells. But both of them, the bad, vi- the bad bacteria and the viruses, uh, are obviously dangerous throughout history. Millions and millions of people have died from both bacteria and viruses. For example, mm-hmm. the bubonic plague or the Black Death was caused by a bacteria, Yersinia pestis. Smallpox right. was called, caused by a virus, the variola virus, as we talked about in our first episode. Uh, in, in more recent times, uh, viruses were responsible for two pandemics, the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918-1919, which killed between 20 to 40 million people, mm. and HIV slash AIDS is estimated right. to have killed one and a half million people in 2013 alone around the world. Mm-hmm. Now, the different, one of the big differences between bacteria and virus is how you treat them. You treat bacterial infections with antibiotics. B for bacteria and B for biotics is how you remember that. And you uh. preemptively treat viruses with vaccinations. V for virus, V for vaccinations. Okay. Bacteria, antibiotics, virus... <laughs> Vaccinations. You can also get vaccinated for bacterial things too, but virus and vaccinations go together. Now, once you get a virus, there isn't much you can do about it. You have to go through the course and and just try and survive. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, bacterial and viral infections can cause similar symptoms. They can both lead to coughing, to sneezing, to fevers, inflammation, vomiting, diarrhea, fatigue, cramping, Mm. which are all symptoms of the body's immune system trying to get rid of infectious organisms in the body. Right. But let's get back to why people started getting less diseases in in the early part of the 20th century. So one of the things that anti-vaxxers will often send you uh, are charts, graphs, that will show you how mortality from various diseases dropped substantially in the first half of the 20th century, quite Mm. often before vaccinations were available. Right. They'll say, look, look, they dropped off before vaccinations. How do you explain that, huh? 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 (laughs) Look at the chart, dumbass. Yeah. (laughs) 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 See? See? Yeah. Um, now, the thing here to understand is that mortality, death, right. is not the same as incidence, catching the disease. Mm-hmm. If anyone ever sends you graphs showing the drop in deaths from disease, say, yeah, okay, now show me the graph for the same disease showing incidence oh. over that period. Right. By the way, I want to give a shout out while we do this to Riley Alexander, 
who's one of our listeners. He's a pathologist in Utah oh, and cool. offered himself up for uh, to be a uh, 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 um, somebody I could bounce things off of. Yeah, well, a, 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 a bouncer. A bouncer. Yeah, he's All a right. bouncer. All right. He's a bouncer. I bounce stuff off him and said, "Does this make sense?" He's a pathologist. Does this make sense to you? He said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense." Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I said, look, nobody knows more about pathology than me, but if just anybody, sometimes I want to right. want to get a second opinion. Right. Yeah. Like a good doctor. Yeah, exactly. Now, see, this is the thing. Um, people were still catching these diseases uh, even as mortality from the diseases was dropping. Right. Um, and one of the reasons is that in the first half of the 20th century – we got a lot better at treating diseases once you had them, stopping you dying from them, from mm. some of these secondary causes that um, I talked about before. So, yeah, look, sanitation, clean water, better nutrition, all of those helped. Don't get me wrong. All yeah. of those helped increase survival rates amongst people who got sick. Right. But people kept getting sick. Now, in 1937, sulfonamide antimicrobial agents were introduced. Right. Now, my understanding is uh, a lot of the reduction in deaths was as reduce of antitoxins, which fight bacteria. Mm-hmm. That was sort of developed in the late 19th century. Antibiotics were developed in the mid-20th century, uh, now, the reason this is interesting is because guess who made those products, antitoxins and antibiotics? Um, big Pharma? I don't know who. Big big Pharma. Right. People are going, look, Big Pharma's trying to sell you anti-vaccines, but really disease, people stopped dying from these diseases before vaccines. Yeah, because Big Pharma invented other things that <laughs> stopped you from dying once you had the disease. <laughs> thank you. And we should thank them, by the way. So let's stop taking antibiotics. Right. Let's stop. <laughs> They're like, oh, look, Big Pharma's conning you by trying to get you to take. Yeah, Big Pharma made these other things as well. It's all Big Pharma. Yeah. Now, antibiotics didn't really kick off until the 1940s. There was an Australian, Howard Florey, mm-hmm. at Oxford, who published a paper talking about how you could purify penicillin for for clinical testing, right, and that's when it really uh, exploded. Alexander Fleming, though, who I think was a Scotsman, accidentally discovered penicillin in 1928. Mm. Okay. Now, it's true that less crowded living conditions also reduce disease transmission, mm-hmm. and lower birth rates in the 20th century decreased the number of people that were in every household that were potentially susceptible to getting the disease, people stopped having 12 children. Some people stopped having 12 children. Right. But let's let's look at the uh, mortality versus incidence rates in measles as one example of how this works and how just pointing at mortality graphs is a little bit of uh, sneaky bullshit from (laughs) anti-vaxxers. A little sleight of hand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the the wide use of the measles vaccine, as I said earlier, didn't start until 1963. 
and deaths were already dropping uh, from measles before that, Mm -hmm. from the things we mentioned before, largely antibiotics. Right. Um, A lot of people, as I mentioned earlier, who got measles and died, actually died from secondary diseases, Mm -hmm. pneumonia, strep, influenza, things like that. Pneumonia is actually the most common severe complication of measles and accounts for most measles-associated deaths. Right. Now, the most common cause of bronchopneumonia is a bacterial lung infection, streptococcus pneumonia. Mm -hmm. It was discovered in 1881 by Louis Pasteur, the French microbiologist, and at the same time, completely independently, an American microbiologist, George Sternberg. Okay. Now, during the late 1800s and the early 1900s, pneumonia was the leading cause of death due to infectious disease and the third leading cause of death overall. Then they developed in the early 1900s something called anti-serum therapy, where you take blood containing antibodies and inject it into people. Hmm. I think they were getting it from horses, from memory. They would give the horse the disease, right. take wait for the horse's immune system, because horses were stronger than humans, to develop antibodies, mm. and then you would suck it out of the horse and inject it into the human. What kind of superhero do they turn into after that? <laughs> Horseman! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't get any powers, but you get a really big dick. <laughs> Hung like a horse. Hung like a horseman. It was cool. Okay, just checking. Don't listen. I know there's a lot of horses where you live. Don't. I'm going to go do it. Out trying no. to do that. I'm doing don't, it tonight. No, don't. No, I'm doing it. <laughs> and done. Um, and by 1913, they had developed. Anti-pneumococcal serum therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you gave that to somebody who had the disease earlier, uh, and pneumonia, this is, if they caught pneumonia, it was able to reduce mortality from 25% down to 7%. Wow. That's doable. But it... It was uh, this. This kind of treatment was slow. It was costly. It was time consuming. And then in the 1930s, the first antibacterial agent, sulfapyridine, mm-hmm. was introduced. It was quite famous in the 30s because it was used to treat Winston Churchill's bacterial pneumonia. Sorry, that was in the early 1940s, 1942. Right. They gave it to Churchill. Um, and saved his life. So people were like, hey, now we can go on and orchestrate the deaths of millions of Indians from starvation. I'm taking the the piss out. Well, I'm not really. He did do that, but... Yeah, yeah. Anyway, if you want to know what I think about Winston Churchill, listen to our Cold War series. Um, But then, as I mentioned earlier, the penicillin really took off in the early 1940s. If I could mention, so, yeah, 
Yeah. I was just going to say, if I can mention one other tool they had, and I did not know this existed. I thought this was, this was pretty neat. So, you, so you're absolutely right. A lot of people who got pneumonia, excuse me, a lot of people who got measles died of secondary infections because obviously they were very weak. Their immune system was, was very weak, but we're doing, the people were doing better with uh, better liver conditions and water. But then they come up with something, or then they figure out how to use and manipulate globulins, which is produced by the liver and other parts of the immune system. And what they would do is they would inject a globulin into a body that is that's been exposed to measles and this doesn't cure it but it's a temporary prevention temporary uh, prevention of the disease or they use it to modify the disease because what happens is their immune your it, it gives your um immune system a boost it's like it's like Popeye and spinach it just gives you a very strong boost and so you can survive a little longer but what they would do is they would purposely give people a relatively small dose of this to weaken the disease not to boost up the body but to boost up the body enough so it weakens the disease in them and it allows the body gives the body time to develop an immunity because I'm not sure if we've said this over the uh, over the last three shows but one of the things that the anti-vaxxers get right, and um, <clears throat> this this uh, this is one of the things they love to crow about, is if you get a disease and then you survive it all on your own, you're obviously your immunity is that much stronger, and you are from what every from what all research shows, you are immune to it for the rest of your life. Whereas if you get a vaccination, some vaccinations over a couple of decades can wear down or get weaker and you might have to get another vaccination later in life. And so they would literally get give these people a weaker dose of the globulin so they could fight the disease on their own. Sometimes they got this wrong. They didn't give enough. They had kind of had to work it out and it didn't work out for the person. But most of the time they got it right and the person was able to fight it and everything is um, everything's a lot better. And also to add on to what you were saying as far as the, the better conditions that people were living in. In fact, as early as the 1900s, there were a lot of local health departments set up. People were being educated on how to clean water, how to take care of themselves. There was better um, neonatal and post-neonatal care for mothers and babies. And through things like that, it helped people basically have a higher standard of health, stronger bodies, better immune systems, and they were able to deal with the stuff. So they're not wrong in that regard. But again, it's not a catch-all for every disease that's going to come um, to a, to whatever populace. Hmm. Yeah, those, those things are all good, but they didn't stop people from catching measles. Absolutely. If you look at the if you look at the incidence rates uh, for measles in the United States, it stayed pretty much level right through to 1963 when the vaccination right. was uh, introduced and publicly, widely publicly available. Then the yeah. incidence rates dropped off at exactly the same rates as mortality dropped off. Um, mortality had already been in decline but it, in a large part, it was because when people caught secondary diseases like pneumonia, they were able to treat them mm -hmm. with increasingly better science and medicine. Yeah. Um, so Big Pharma really reduced the death toll. Yes, clean water. Uh, uh, yes, better living conditions, better education, better awareness, better food, better nutrition, all played a role, undoubtedly. Yeah. But also... The arrival of antibiotics in treating secondary diseases was a big, big, big part of that, and Big Pharma played a big role in that. Let's look at diphtheria. 
as a different disease. Now, diphtheria is an acute infectious disease that affects the upper respiratory tract, kills by asphyxiation like don't python. Oh, okay. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And Michael Hutchins. Uh, Bacterium, the, the bacterium that causes diphtheria was discovered in 1883. Now, just to point out, how bad this disease was mm-hmm. in 1883 the diphtheria death rate was 125 per 100,000 people in New York City oh my god not 100,000 people who got the disease just 100,000 people 125 people out of 100,000 were dying of diphtheria right but then in the 1890s they developed the diphtheria antitoxin again this was uh horse blood mm mm-hmm. Um, unless you were Charlie Sheen, then it had to be tiger blood. But for everyone else, it was horse blood. By the end of 1942, only a third of all children under 15 years of age in England and Wales and half of all of the children in Scotland had been vaccinated against diphtheria. Mm. And the cases there remained high. Mortality, though, was in decline because of the antitoxins and the antibiotics, which, by the way, is how you treat diphtheria. Right. You treat it with an antibiotic. Uh, Here's a good stat. During World War II in England, more children died from diphtheria than from Nazi bombing. Yeah. Yeah. You saw that stat? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. 9,000 deaths of children from diphtheria during World War II in England versus 8,000 deaths from uh, the Luftwaffe. Right. It wasn't until they passed the National Health Service Act of 1946 that the majority of children in the UK started getting vaccinated. And then when you look at the graphs you can see uh, the fall-off of cases of diphtheria going strong until the early 40s and then completely plummets. Yeah. Sorry, yes? I I just wanted to add because, again, I was on um, um, anti-vax websites. Um, I think this one was vactruth.com. And when it comes to to, um, diphtheria, they had some – again, they had – parceled out information to prove their case about how deadly and dangerous either vaccines are or maybe some of the earlier ones uh, weren't that effective and the doctors tried to hush it up. But I just wanted to throw this out real quick. So because you're dealing again with this complex thing in the complex body, what happened was there was a series of deaths from the vaccines. And if you just stop from 1901 to, uh, I think, to like the 1960-something, and if you just stop right there, it sounds horrible, and it sounds like it's a good argument for not getting this vaccine. But but again, it's when you dive deeper into it that you find out the truth. And just to give you a couple of examples, in 1901, 10 out of 11 inoculated St. Louis children died from their antitoxin. But it turns out that the horse that they got it from died of a disease. So obviously the horse was infected with something and, and these kids died from whatever, you know, contaminant that the horse had in them. In 1919 in Texas, 10 children were killed and 60 others were made really sick by their antitoxin. And uh, they never quite figured out what had happened because they supposedly tested this drug in New York, but it, but it, and it passed. But the Mulford Company of Philadelphia that made 
the antitoxin uh, said, yeah, we don't know what happened, but obviously something went wrong and they paid damages in every single case. And again, there were other ones in 1920s and 1930s that uh, it turns out that there just there was something wrong with the process, something happened with transportation or whatever. But again, when you read it on anti-vax websites, they leave the details out and it just makes it sound like over the years, a lot of people have died as a direct result of the vaccine. Yeah, like it... You have to keep driving home to people that medicine, even today, where we are at with medicine, it's kind of a blunt instrument approach yeah. to medicine. Yeah. You know, we, we, we don't have the ability to custom build medicines, vaccinations or any other form of medicine for your particular biology, your genetic your your the way your body works um right we're, we're getting close to that we're getting close to being able to do that mm-hmm. um but we're not there yet and we certainly weren't there a hundred years ago uh, it's it's a fairly blunt instrument our approach look we you know we we try and slam the body with things that we think are going to have a net positive effect right and sometimes it go it gets it goes wrong yeah but uh you know the net net the net benefit is always, not always, hopefully in these right. cases, higher than the risk of doing it or the risk of doing nothing. Right. It's, it's playing the numbers. Absolutely. So um, I know we're running long, but let me just sort of wrap up this claim and then we can move on to the next claim in the next episode. So <laughs> we talked about measles and diphtheria in terms of the mortality rate versus the incidence rate. Mm-hmm. And other diseases show similar patterns when you look at the incidence graphs. So, you know, the whole idea that better sanitation and clean water cause the incidence of each disease to drop just at the same time a vaccine for that disease was introduced mm-hmm. is a bit hard to believe. I right. mean, it's it, sanit- sanitation is a great thing, but it didn't stop the diseases. Big Pharma stopped mortality from disease, first by antibiotics, then Mm anti-serums and and better and better medicines as time went on, helping people recover when they'd already caught the disease. And then with vaccinations by helping them not catch it in the first place. Yeah. Now, uh, just for more data on this, we can look at what's happened in several developed countries when they allowed their immunization levels to drop like we're seeing happening in the US with measles at the moment. We can look at great examples of Great Britain, Sweden, and Japan mm-hmm. when they cut back the use of the pertussis, the whoop, I always say whooping, whooping cough. Right. I don't, know why, I don't know why we write that with a W, whooping. It's fine. Whoop. Yeah, but why do we do that? Why, why has it got a W, a whoop? Why does knife have whoop, a K? Whoop, I, don't, whoop, I don't know. Whoop, yeah, I don't good know. point. Yeah. Whooping cough vaccine. Because people, people were uh, sort of having this round of paranoia about whooping cough at one point. And look, whooping cough is nasty. Oh yeah, uh, uh, really nasty. The World Health Organization estimates that in two thousand and eight, there were about sixteen million cases of whooping cough, and about one hundred ninety five thousand children died from the disease in two thousand and eight. Oh god, yeah. 
Now, in 2012, the UK experienced a huge nationwide outbreak of pertussis. There were over 9,300 cases in England alone, 10 Mm. times as many as they'd had in recent years. Jeez. Uh, A report from the United States says that between 1940 and 1944, whooping cough accounted for more than twice as many childhood deaths as the combined total for measles, scarlet fever, diphtheria, polio, and meningococcal. Mm. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's a problem. Now, these countries I mentioned before, um, UK, Sweden, and Japan, they stopped vaccinating their kids for whooping cough in the 1970s because there was a misinformation campaign going around at the time similar to the one that... Andrew Wakefield started mm. again in the UK Asshole. Um, about MMR vaccine in the 90s. The British uh, are big on um, anti-vaccination hysteria, apparently. Right. Um, according to the World Health Organization, in Great Britain, a drop in whooping cough vaccination in 1974 was followed by an epidemic of more than 100,000 cases and 36 deaths by 1978. Mm. Um, although I'm going to throw a disclaimer in here because I, I read a few reports on this. It's possible that some of the increase, and I couldn't find data on what they had before 1974. Right. But um, I just read that it was a huge increase, an epidemic. So I'm assuming it was a lot less than that. Although I did read that some of that might be due to greater awareness and media coverage. Mm. When people are paying more attention, they may be reporting more cases than had previously been reported. So we have to allow for that in the numbers. Right. But in Japan, where there was also a drop in vaccination at the same time, from 70% down to 20 to 40%, it led to a jump in whooping cough cases. Uh, 393 cases and no deaths in 1974, jumped to 13,000 cases and 41 deaths in 1979. There's a 3,300% increase Jeez, in Japan. Right. In Sweden, uh, they dropped from an incidence of whooping cough per 100,000 children from 700 cases in 1981 to 3,200 cases in 1985. That's a 500% increase. Now, the reason I'm, I'm pointing these out is the quality of clean water and sanitation in these countries didn't change, didn't get worse between 1974 and 1978. Right. What changed was their vaccination rates. Mm. And the disease levels went through the roof, hundreds to thousands of percent increases. So, again, this is a big, big hole in the whole clean water and sanitation argument. Right. If, if I can add on to the whole Protestas um, outbreak in 1970s, and you were, you were saying this a minute ago, you know, obviously medicine is a very complex thing. The body is a complex thing. And we're still learning. And there's nothing wrong with scientists or doctors admitting that. We're, I think um, anti-vaxxers kind of jump over that, um, jump on that sometimes and, and see that as a, 
a fallibility or weakness, but you know, we're still learning. I did find an interesting story on sciencebasedmedicine.org about uh, pertussis in the 1970s. And, and I'll just do a, a quick um, recap of it because I know we're way over. But in the 1940s, the pertussis vaccine is first introduced. And obviously, were countries that had an effective vaccine program, you know, pertussis drops down significantly. And when, it, when I can get, if I can focus on the United States for a second, since the 1970s, pertussis has been, I mean, from 1940 to when, it, when that vaccine, vaccine was introduced to the 1970s, pertussis was making a slow comeback in the United States and in other countries as well. And what they figured out was, and, and actually in 1976, the United States had its lowest case of pertussis. We had just over a thousand cases, which is incredible can, compared to what the deaths were when you, when you were talking earlier. And what they tried to figure out was that um, when the vaccine first came out, many of the people were still, you know, they were getting the vaccine. And so soon, if you got a vaccine, you were good from like four, for maybe four or 12 years. Or if you survived a pertussis infection, you, you had an immunity from four to 20 years. And so what happened was from the 1940s until the 1970s, there's like a sweet spot a honeymoon period in the United States when it comes to pertussis because you've got excellent community immunity. You've got a bunch of, bunch of people that had the disease that survived and everybody else, a lot of everybody else got the vaccination. So they, so they were doing really well. But what happens was the people who got the vaccination were getting older, you know, two, three decades would go by and their vaccine wasn't as strong as it once was. And so by the time 1970s comes along, late 1970s, there's an increase in pertussis. And so the doctors look at this and they're like, you know what, for the adults, we recommend you get another vaccine, which is something the anti-vaxxers jump all over. They say, look, see, it's not, it doesn't protect you for life. That's not the point. If you get a second vaccination, you're probably going to be covered for the rest of your life. And what, what the scientists were saying is that adults rarely get it or they rarely spread it. It's pretty much the kids. As long as we make sure the kids get vaccinated, we're probably going to be okay. We're not going to see this outbreak again. But again, when there's a slight flaw, when there's a slight... Um, where there's a, a chance to, to improve upon it, the anti-vaxxers jump on that and they explain it in such a way to make it sound like vaccines are ineffective and or harmful. Yeah. It's just really sloppy thinking. Really, mm-hmm. really sloppy thinking. But it's got to be dealt with. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it seems clear that if we stop vaccinating, these diseases are going to come back. Now, we might have a better chance of surviving them than we did Right. A century ago, but That's who really wants to end up in hospital? <laughs> who wants to play the lottery? If you don't have to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the cost to society is enough reason to want to avoid it. And I'll talk about costs a little bit later on. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, whenever you get sick, you know what it's like. There's downtime. There are health costs. Right. Uh, it's expensive for you personally, for your family, and for society when you get sick. Now, there are also major epidemics of diphtheria in the former Soviet Union in the 1990s, which is another good example. After the fall of the USSR, there were low primary immunization rates for children and lack of booster vaccinations for adults. It resulted in an increase from 839 cases in 1989 to nearly 50,000 cases and 1,700 deaths in 1994. That's a 6,000% increase in diphtheria. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the measles outbreak in New York that we talked about earlier. Now, 
does New York not have clean water and sanitation? Right. Well, maybe not. This is America, after all. Where uh, <laughs> it's not Flint, Michigan, though. It's got yeah, it's got I know, water. but you know, yeah. yeah. Now, people also say anti-vaxxers also say not anti-vaxxers, but um, well, all, all sorts of people actually have told me that the measles drop in 1963 could have had a lot to do with healthcare getting to the poor. Uh, after you know some civil rights acts were being passed, uh, right. um, I think it was sixty four though. Actually, wasn't it? Uh, look, there might be some truth to that. You know, the, the, again, that uh, there were large sections of the population in the US that were poor and were getting better access to healthcare by the sixties. Mm-hmm. But it's a bit like the gun debate. Gun violence has dropped in all developed countries over the last thirty years, right. as we talked about in our gun control series, even in America. So you might say, well, why bother with gun laws if if gun violence rates are dropping? If you just leave it alone, other socioeconomic forces will take care of it. Mm-hmm. But as an Australian, I say, no, thanks. <laughs> keep your guns. Right. Keep your infectious diseases too. I want my gun violence and my infectious diseases <laughs> as low as possible. Right. Thank you very much. Exactly. So that's it for claim number two. All up. I'm sorry, but I have to give it a five out of five for complete... Bullshit. Yeah, I concur. We'll, we'll be back uh, next week with episode uh, 4.5, where we'll look at claim number three. The very first vaccine was a disaster. We will drill down in that on that uh, next time. Thank you, Ray. Mm-hmm. Thank you.